If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. I bribed Pastor Cameron and purchased seven minutes of preaching time at the start of the service. And I wasted 30 seconds of it running up here. Oh, man, sorry about that. Revelation chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These things are the true sayings of God. I'm getting old. There's a lot of things I don't remember. A lot of stories I hear of people telling me things that I was supposed to be there to see, but I've forgotten all about them. But almost 26 years ago, there's a day I remember like it was today, my wedding day. It was beautiful. Now, I was uh, newly saved and trying to do things God's way, so Cheryl and I decided it was time to get married, and uh, we didn't have a fancy church wedding. We got married in Jason Carpenter's backyard. Everybody wave to Jason Carpenter. If you need a wedding venue, he's available. In fact, our wedding was unique. It was a surprise wedding. We just invited our friends and family to a party, and then when they showed up, we got married. (laughs) True story. True story. I was going to bring a picture, but on the day I got married, my hair touched my belt all the way around, and I was afraid it would scare some of y'all, so I don't have a picture. But I remember that day so well. I remember standing under that tree in Jason's backyard, the preacher beside me, watching for my wife to make her way out the back door. When she stepped out, I don't remember seeing with my human eyes a more beautiful image. When I looked at her, now she's almost perfect, but not quite. She's human. She's almost perfect. But what little bit of imperfection there is, when I looked at her, I didn't remember any of it. All I could think was, that's my bride. She belongs to me. I love her. She's perfect. What in the world is she doing marrying me? Thank God she didn't know what she was getting into, you know? I saw her as perfection. And everyone else turned and looked. Remember how uh, they're already bum-fuzzled. We thought we were coming to a pool party and we're stuck at a wedding. They turned and looked at my wife, watched her as she walked over to me, and then... Watch that wedding. As I read about the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, I'm back in that moment. And I'm thinking now, 
I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm part of the church. I'm the bride. Now that, when I first started thinking about that, when I was a new Christian, I'm learning this, that the church is the bride of Christ. My manhood was challenged. I don't want to be nobody's bride. Then I remembered how I looked at my bride. That's how the groom, that's how the lamb of God, that's how Jesus will look at his bride on that day. He'll forget. Now, Cheryl's just got a few minor imperfections. I have boatloads of imperfections. In that moment, he'll choose to forget all of them. Every mistake I ever made. Because I've been redeemed. Because I put on his righteousness. I'll stand there perfect before him. And if you're a child of God, if you're part of the family of God, if you've turned from your sin, put your trust in Jesus. You're there. And he'll look at us. Now, it's true now. He sees us like we never messed up. But in that moment, I get to see him, see me as perfect. Our wedding, Cheryl was the focus, and she should have been. Best looking person there. But at this wedding, as happy as I'll be to be there, I won't be the focus. Instead, the Lamb of God. Those angels who were saying, behold, hallelujah, let's be glad. They weren't talking about Jeremy. They were talking about the Lamb of God. He'll be the focus. Now, we're in the moment right now today where we're waiting. It's almost time for the bridegroom to come get us. We'll get to see him see us. And then we'll sit down to a meal. It'll be awesome. Almost as awesome as the meal we had after my wedding. Jason Carpenter, the gracious host, I'm telling you, wedding venue, he cooked hamburgers and hot dogs. It was nice. We'll sit down to an even better meal. The big question is, are you ready for that? Are you part of the bride? And if you are adopted into God's family, are you living expectantly waiting for our groom to come? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Jesus, thank you for doing what it took to pay the dowry to make us yours. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that's not a part of your church, that you would draw them and save them today. And those of us who are, God, will you help us to live every moment in light of the fact that we belong to you. We are already betrothed. We are already yours, and we're just waiting for the moment we see our groom face to face. In your name we pray. Revelation chapter 19, we're going to begin reading in verse 11. We're actually going to refer back in just a moment to a couple of passages previous in the Bible. You don't have to turn there. You can write them down and look at them later. But I want to preach to you today on unveiling the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, sometimes we, the day of the Lord is really a period of time. It's not a 24-hour day. It's a time period in which a lot of the events that we're talking about are going to take place. So think of that, of this really uh, a season of time where God is doing these final things. Sometimes we think about what we're describing in this passage. We think of it as the return of Christ, or we'll call it the second coming of Christ. It's important to distinguish between two events that will take place in the future. The 
rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Now, why do we believe there are two different events? Well, they're described as different. There's distinctions between these. For example, in the rapture, 1 Thessalonians tells us that the believers are going to meet the Lord in the air. In this passage, we see that Christ is coming back to the church with the saints returning with him. Those who are robed in robes of white, the righteousness of saints. So there's a distinction. One is the believers rise to meet the Lord in the air. The other is, is that we return with Christ. The rapture is an experience of blessing for believers. But the second coming is going to be an experience of judgment for the unbelievers that are left. The rapture will be secret, and it's going to be instant. It's going to happen in a moment, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, in the twinkling of an eye. This event, the second coming, is going to be something that will be visible to all. Revelation chapter 1 tells us this. Matthew chapter 24 says that every eye shall see him. The last thing, the distinction that I'll give to you just to make this clear to us is that the rapture is going to be something that is imminent. It is hanging over our heads. It could happen at any moment. This second coming of Christ is something that there will be a number of events that will transpire prior to it. There are things that will happen, and it will be easily identifiable when it's going to take place. So we're talking about two different events here, two different things that are taking place. We've seen about the rapture. The first, um, Pastor Darren spoke about the rapture in our first week of this series, and he talked about the fact that we will be called up to be together with the Lord. That's what we as the church are looking toward, is the rapture of the church. But this is the second coming of Christ. Put it simply, the rapture is a demonstration of grace. The second coming is going to be a demonstration of God's judgment on this earth. And we'll see that in our text this morning. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to do this. Here's my desire. I want you to see what God does in this prophecy. As he does with every revelation about himself, every revelation that God gives to mankind, one of the primary or the primary purpose is for us to see something about him. It is to exalt his greatness and his glory. And so as we look at this message this morning and we look at this passage, I hope you'll see past the desire for details to know what's going to transpire, to worry about is this person this and all those things we've talked about. Put that aside because prophecy is for first and foremost to point us to the person of Jesus Christ, to point us to the greatness of God. The rapture is going to show his greatness, but I want you to see this morning how this second coming of Christ magnifies the greatness of our God. Our God is great and worthy to be praised. Our God is beyond our comprehension. There are two parts, two truths in this passage, this event that I want you to see this morning. Begin reading with me, if you will, in verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. I want to pause to make a distinction between this rider on a white horse and a rider in Revelation chapter 6 that is also on a white horse. That is a false Christ. That is one who comes as a part of the first seal that is open. And in his hand, he has a bow. He comes pretending to bring peace to the earth. But he does not bring peace because he is not the prince of peace. He is a false prince, and he comes in false 
in deception. Christ will come. This is Christ, and he comes back. He is very clear about what he is going to do. Notice what it says. His name is called Faithful and True. The first writer is a, is a deceiver. Jesus is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does what? He comes to judge and make war. Now let me pause again and say that there are those who are uncomfortable with the fact that God is a, as well the Bible says, the Lord is a man of war. Now that's sort of, that can make us uncomfortable. We don't like to think about that. And it's not a pleasant truth to understand that God is going to bring, Christ is going to bring judgment and justice. If you read the remaining part of chapter 19, past where we'll end, it says that the entire, that the birds come to eat the flesh of kings and captains and the mighty men and the flesh of horses. They're going to be completely destroyed. Christ is coming back. He is coming back not to bring a, a, a peace yet. He will bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. But he will first bring war, and he comes in righteousness to judge and to make war. There ought to be times when truths about God make us uncomfortable. When truths about God, things that God has revealed about himself, stretch us beyond what we are comfortable with. And this may be one of those truths this morning for you. As we read about this, notice how it describes this rider on a white horse. Verse 12, his eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. This is not the blood of his sacrifice. This is the blood of justice and judgment. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with that with it he should smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In this second coming, I want you to see two demonstrations of God's greatness. And my reason in doing so is because I firmly believe that what we need the most of is a deeper awareness of the greatness of our God. Every time in Scripture, when a person comes into the presence of God and encounters the glorious greatness of our God, they are radically changed. And when I see believers and when I see Christians that look no different than the world around us, and I look at my own life, and I look at the life of others, and I see apathy, and I see a lack of concern about the things of God, and I see a need for revival, I'm reminded that we need to be aware of the greatness of God, because when we see how great God is, we can do nothing but be humbled before Him. We will worship Him. We will serve and obey Him. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord, what did he say? He first said, Woe is me, for I am undone. He was convicted of his sin. He confessed his sin. He was cleansed from his sin, and he was called into the service of him. He said, Here am I, send me. And so you cannot encounter a, the presence and have a deeper understanding and awareness of God's greatness without it radically and dramatically changing your life. And so this morning, here's my prayer, and here's what I want us to do. I want us to see the greatness of God revealed in this portion of Scripture. And it'll point us to the glory of Christ and the glory of God. And as it does, I pray that we will respond accordingly. 
As we look at this, I want you to see two things. First of all, the greatness of God is demonstrated by the gathering of the wicked. The wicked nations are gathered together. They come together from around the world. All the nations of this world will come and they will assemble themselves. We have the capability of doing that like never before. They will assemble themselves in the Middle East. They will assemble themselves around the nation of Israel and around the city of Jerusalem. In fact, this may be more than just one single battle. It may be a somewhat of a campaign. There are a number of things described in Scripture. And the word that is used is the idea of war. This is really the campaign of Armageddon. And it's a, it's a battle, it is a war that they will come to make against God and against His people. And as they gather, what is it that draws them? What is it that gathers them? Look back with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 16, just a chapter or two before. And we see something very interesting that takes place. It seems as if Satan and his demonic, his devilish trinity are behind what is taking place. It seems like they are the ones that are calling the nations together. Revelation chapter 16 in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his vial, his bowl of judgment, upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. We don't know what the significance of the idea of frogs is, but we do know what these spirits are because he's getting ready to explain it to us. Sometimes we try to read more into these imageries than there are. Just let Scripture, let scripture explain itself. Verse 14, he says, These are the spirits of devils. These are demonic spirits working miracles that go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great, to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. These spirits are going out into the world and they will give lies and deception to the rulers of this world. And this verse says they gather them together to that great day of God Almighty. It seems as if Satan is the one who is rallying the troops against God. But there's an interesting passage in Zechariah chapter 14. You don't have to take the time to turn there. You can read that passage later. If you have trouble finding it, just go to Matthew. It's pretty easy to find Matthew. Back up a couple of books and you'll be right in Zechariah. It's the last chapter of the book. But in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 1, God says this. God says, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. God is the one that gathers the nations. So pastor, is it, is it the evil spirits? Is this the work of Satan to rally these nations to come against Israel? Or is it the work of God to rally these nations against Israel? And the answer is yes. You see, our understanding of what takes place in this world is sometimes flawed. There's, there's a couple of ways of looking at God's work and Satan's work in this world. One is a sort of dualism where you sort of have God and the devil and they're pretty much equal and opposing powers. There's good and evil and there's we're fighting it out, and we're not certain how it's going to turn out, which one will come out on top. Uh, I see this every once in a while. Sometimes Christians fall into this way of thinking. Um, I hope I don't step on anyone's toes this morning by saying this. If you've shared this on social media, I, I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you were wrong in doing so, but you were wrong. Um, there's a picture of Jesus and the devil arm wrestling, and it says, 
If my followers will share this, I'll win. Let me tell you, if Jesus has to rely on me sharing something to win an arm wrestling match with the devil, that's the wrong Jesus. And he's going to wait a long time before I'm going to share it. That's not, that's not how things are. This is not God and the devil fighting this great cosmic battle. There's another false thinking that Christians will sometimes slip into, and that is more of a monism. That is sort of where there's just one supernatural power. God is overall, and there's this fatalism and determinism, and he's determined everything that's going to happen, and nothing is contrary, nothing goes... He, he has determined everything good and evil that happened in this world. This is the view of Islam, and many Christians, again, fall into this thinking. But I love that the Bible view is more balanced and much more complex than that. The Bible teaches us a number of things about this. The Bible view is that God is sovereign. God is absolutely supreme. God has no equals. God has no rivals. But he has sovereignly chosen to rule and govern in this world through the agency of supernatural powers, some of them that are evil. John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus said that Satan is the prince, the ruler of this world. You see, what happens is, is exactly what happened at the crucifixion. There are those who think they are running things. But the thing is, is that no matter what God allows Satan to do, we saw just a few weeks ago, did, did God allow Satan some, some room in Job's life? Did he allow him to do some things that were bad for Job? Yes, he did. But you see, just like it was at the crucifixion, Judas thought he was in charge. There are those who believe that Judas betrayed Jesus with the hopes that he would prompt Jesus and force Jesus into um, establishing his kingdom and he would, get some kind of, he would get some kind of significance in that kingdom. And Judas thought he was in control. And the Pharisees that paid him the money and they betrayed Jesus, they thought they were running things. And Satan thought he was in charge and he was in control. But it was God's plan from the foundation, before the foundation of the world that it would be the lamb that was slain. Jesus Christ going to the cross was not plan B because man did things and Satan did some things. It was God who was in control of it all. And the greatness of our God is not that he is determined and predetermined in some fatalistic way every single thing that will take place, but that in his sovereignty he allows and even uses, as Martin Luther would say, and I don't agree with like everything about Martin Luther, but Martin Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. And God will use what Satan does for his evil intent and he will accomplish his purpose and his plan. And there is nothing that Satan does, there is nothing that man does that can overturn or thwart God's purpose in this world. And these nations gathering together will think that it's their, their idea. They've been deceived and these rulers will say, we're the ones that are going to go to war. We're the ones making the decisions. And it'll be Satan's demonic, devilish trinity, that counterfeit to God's trinity, that will think that it is their deceptions that have gathered the nations together. But all along, he that sits in the heavens will laugh at their calamity because he will know that it is God that says, I'm the one who has gathered the nations together for this battle. God's the one that's in control. God's the one that's in charge. 
And that tells me, that boy, that's not just for something that's going to happen in the future. That is for every single day of my life. There are things in my life that are not good things. There are things in your life that happen that are not good things. But God is able to take even those things and bring good out of it. Boy, that changes the way we view this world. I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. Why is this happening to me? I'm a good Christian and I'm a good person. I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm dressed in that righteousness of Christ. But bad things happen to me, but my God is greater than those bad things. And he's the one that is at work in my life to accomplish something that is great, something that is amazing, something that I may not even be able to see. That's the greatness of our God. And in the gathering of the nations, there is nothing so small, there is nothing in this world that takes place that is so great that is not a part of God's plan and God's purpose and God's work. Praise the Lord for his greatness. There's another truth here. God's greatness is manifested, secondly, through the glory of his word. Do you see the name that is given to Christ? There's actually three names that are here. One is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We see this in verse 16. He has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 13 tells us that, or verse 12 rather, tells us that he has one name written that no man knows but he himself. But then in verse 13 it says, He is the Word of God. You see, it is in the Word of God that his glory is most clearly seen. Who is the Word? John chapter 1 and verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is the Word of God, not just the written Word, but the living Word of God that is the fullest expression of His glory. And I love how God's Word has been at work throughout time and throughout creation. It was the Word, it was the spoken Word of God that brought everything that exists into being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, spoke words, let there be light. And what? There was light. God spoke ex nihilo, out of nothing. He, we take things and create other things. God took nothing and created everything by his word. That's the power of the word. John chapter 1 again. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It is the word that created. It is God's word that thundered on Sinai. When God spoke his word and spoke his law to man, the word, the voice of God thundered. It was the voice of God at Calvary. It was the word, both his spoken word and himself as the word, that spoke forgiveness and salvation to mankind. And it is the word that will return here in triumph to conquer and to rule. He is the word of God. So his word, he is the expression of God. And he is the glory of God. The most common use of the word glory in the scriptures is used to describe the splendor, the holiness, and the majesty of God. The splendor, the glory, and the majesty of God, His holiness. 
In this sense, it's often associated with humanity experiencing God's presence in a tangible way. Let me tell you, when His glory is manifested here, they will experience His manifestation in a tangible way. They will experience, they will see the glory of God. There is no biblical theme that probably is in Scripture that's more prominent than the glory of God. The entire arc of human history is the drama of God's glory. God created man, the Bible says, as the, as the image bearer. He crowned him with glory and honor. But man traded that glory and honor in the fall when he sinned. He traded glory for his own hearts made idols. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you're in that place. You are a part of a humanity that has traded the glory of God for the crumbling idols of self. In the cross, Christ works to reunite us with His glory and to restore us to that. And in the age to come, God's people will walk in the glory of the likeness of, of God Himself and the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because you see, Christ is the glory of God. He is the expression of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 says that He is the glory, that the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is full of grace and He is full of truth? That's the glory of God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the invisible things of God. God's greatest glory that cannot be seen with the naked eye is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that He, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of God's person. That's, that's the glory. So when the Word returns, the Word of God, this living Word on this white horse, when He returns, it will be the fullest expression of the glory of God. And man will not be able to stand before it because His glory will be seen in the fullness of His power. Matthew 24 and verse 30 says, They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, The Lord will consume the wicked one with the spirit of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness, with the glory, the effulgence of his coming. Jesus is the manifestation. This glory of the word shows us Christ has revealed to us his greatness and the greatness of God. In the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus won a great victory over the powers of evil. And it is in His second coming that He will execute that victory. And we read what's going to take place when the, all these armies of the earth will not stand a chance. The greatest powers of Satan, the beast and the false prophet and the dragon are defeated by Christ. In redemption, God begins to restore. He works in us to restore His glory and restore us to the image of Christ. He intends to restore us in order to reflect His glory, and He will bring to completion what He has begun in Jesus Christ. 
This is the manifestation of His glory. As we look at these verses from verse 11 down through verse 16, we see He is faithful and He is true, the glory of Christ. He is righteous, He judges, His eyes are a flame of fire, He wears many crowns, crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. He has a name, secret name that is written, oh, the power of that name. He is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. He is the Word of God. He is leading the armies of heaven, verse 14. He has a sharp sword, two-edged sword, Revelation 1 says, that comes out of His mouth that He's going to smite the nations. And He has a name written. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the glory of Christ. That is the greatness of our God. The glory returns in this moment. It is interesting that when the glory departed in the Old Testament, you can go back to Ezekiel chapter 9 through 11, and Ezekiel the prophet has this vision of the glory leaving Jerusalem. It leaves the temple. He sees the glory, the glory cloud and the holy of holies, and it begins to move and it leaves the temple and it goes out the threshold and out the door and it leaves across the city of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel chapter 11 tells us where the glory leaves. It leaves across the Mount of Olives. It says the mountain to the east and the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. It crosses across that. It is little wonder and how appropriate it is that when God restores, when Christ returns in glory, Matthew chapter 24 Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that Christ will come and He will set His foot on the Mount of Olives. He will return to the same mountain that He ascended from in Acts chapter 1. And the glory that departed and the glory that left will be the glory of God that returns to that same place. This is the return of the glory of God. And Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5 says, The glory of God shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. What a glorious, glorious day that will be. That's the greatness of our God. The greatness of God seen in the glory of Jesus Christ. And when we look to Christ, prophecy should draw us to look to God to see what He has revealed to us about Himself. And He is revealing to us how glorious and how great He is. And He does that in the person of Christ was reminded of a writing from some time ago called The Incomparable Christ. And I'm going to close with that this morning because my desire is for you to look to Christ and in seeing Him, not just know more information about Him, not just know some verses that speak about Him, but to see with your eye of faith, to see with your heart's eye the truth of Christ and His glory. And as you see that, you cannot experience that, you cannot see that without being changed more than 2,000 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived, and that was during an exile in his childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous. They neither had training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled theologians. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the billows as if pavements, and hushed the sea to sleep.
He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the country could not hold the books that have been written of him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun. And yet, no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. The names of the past proud statesmen of ancient empires have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. Though time has spread approximately 2,000 years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by the angels, and adored by saints, feared by devils, as the living, personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. And He is coming again. Are you ready? That's the incomparable Christ. See Him in His glory. You see Him in His glory now and you acknowledge Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then there will be a day when we will be in His presence. But reject Him, and there may be a day, there will be a day. The Bible says every knee will bow. Satan himself, who thinks he's bringing these armies against God, will one day bow the knee to Christ. Why? Because He is the Word of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's see him as he is. Let's see him in his glory. Is he Lord of your life? Is he not just Lord of your life? Does he possess you as Lord? I confessed him as my Lord when I got saved, but ever since then, it's been a work of the Spirit for me to be under his possession as Lord. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And one day, one day he will return in triumph. Father, I pray this morning that our hearts will be moved to worship your glory. Father, for us to see you as you are. Father, I pray that you will humble us before you. And I pray that all the things of this world will grow strangely dim as we look upon your face.